But I want to speak not just from some specific verses there, but I, by the end of the message, I want to have gone much bigger, a bit more global in what is the gospel, what is the good news about Jesus, but then also what is not the gospel. Because this is really important. It's important for anyone who's a follower of Jesus to understand for our own faith. It's really important for our, 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 our ability to share the gospel with other people, and we'll talk about that. But it's also a unity thing, and this is what was dividing the church in Rome. There were these cultural and racism issues, but Paul goes deep, deep, deep on theology to try and help them understand the, the, the real essence, the core of the good news of Jesus so that from that point they could have unity with each other and not let other things divide. So first a reminder that the first four books in our New Testament, we call them Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they are the Gospels of our Lord Jesus Christ. But later in the New Testament, like we have been reading in Romans, when Paul writes about the Gospel, he's not talking about those four books. He's talking about a more succinct version. But but both are a clue because the Gospels, the four Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament, are a record of Jesus' life as the Son of God born into a human body, his teaching, his death on the cross, and his resurrection to new life. Those are, it, it tells the story of that, and that is the Gospel. That's the, the, the essence of the good news about Jesus, that God came to us. But then later, there is a much more succinct version of that that Paul and others will talk about. And so if you want to understand the gospel, you could understand about Jesus or you could understand the really small, succinct version. And that's where we're going to today. So let's get up to where Paul is up to in Romans chapter 9 and then we'll move on to chapter 10. So just remember the, the issue that Paul is speaking into. His whole reason for writing is not a theological textbook. Often that's how we think about Romans. Sometimes that's how it's even treated in preaching and in Bible colleges. He wasn't setting out to just try and give information. There was a problem in the church and it was racism or, or culturalism. So normally in the world at that time, it was the Jews that first came to know about Jesus. And when a Jewish person came to know about Jesus, they had all of this background. They had all of the Old Testament writings and traditions and all the Old Testament laws and, and rules and culture. And then into that, they understood who God was. And Jesus then was God's Messiah. And the church grew from that point, that was what was happening most places in the world. In, in Rome, the issues we've talked about on other Sundays, that didn't happen. It started with a Gentile background. No Old Testament, no Jewish culture, no Old Testament rules or, or laws or anything like that. They started without all of that. They had their own Greek culture, but into that they still understood Jesus as the Son of God and the church grew. And then when the Jews came into this church, they had issues and they had problems with each other because they were both well established. Most other places, your Gentiles just had to live with it because they were coming into a much stronger Jewish culture. But in Rome, it was flipped. The established Jewish culture was having to submit now to the established Gentile culture. They're all Christians. But you only have to visit another church to recognize, sure, we've got a lot in common, but also some Christians can be really weird. 
Some of them have, have different practices and some of them have, have seem to have different core beliefs. And so what is most important? How can we get along? And so right at the end of Romans chapter 9, Paul um, kind of summarizes what he's been talking about, about these two groups. So verse 30 of Romans 9, he says, what does all this mean? I've been writing all this stuff. What does all this mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they weren't even trying, they were made right with God and it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel, the Jewish people, they tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, they never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. And so they stumbled over the great rock in their path. And then he continues on his train of thought. And then in verse four of chapter 10, still in the same similar thinking pattern, he says, for Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. And as a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. So whether you are a Gentile and you're trying to keep God's laws and trying to do the right thing, or whether you're a Jewish person and you, sorry, even if you don't know about God's laws and you're not trying, or you're a Jewish person and you do know and you are trying, none of that essentially matters because it all comes down to Jesus and faith in him. And as, as a result of Jesus and what he accomplished, that all who believe in him are made right with God. And this is all still true for us. The bad news is that we aren't right with God in our natural state. The bad news is that no amount of law keeping or right living is going to fix that. The bad news is that no amount of right believing and right living are going to be able to fix that. The bad news in Paul's letter in the whole New Testament, the bad news is that no matter how well you live, no matter how successful you are, no matter how your family turned out, no matter how well your career is going, no matter what happened to your marriage, to your bank balance, to your super fund, no matter what mark you got in the exam, no matter how many friends you have or how many friends you've hurt, none of that stuff can make you closer to God and none of that stuff can make you further away from God. The bad news, the bad news of the Bible is that by yourself, you can't get any closer to God. But the good news is that God came to you in Jesus. And everyone who trusts that this is true, everyone who trusts that Jesus came to us is made right and okay with God. This is the good news, and, and gospel means good news. This is the gospel that am I right with God? Am I okay with Him? How do I know? What do I have to do? How does this work? How does this happen? How can I or anyone else be right with God? It's only by believing in Jesus. And some of you might be here this morning and thinking, okay, I understand that's the good news, but I still don't get why why it's needed. Why, why is that necessary? Why do I need this apparent good news? Why do I need to be made right with God? And it's because of the underlying reality that there is more to life than what we see and think and feel. There's more to life than just chance and naturally occurring algorithms. All the beauty, all the order had to start somewhere with someone. 
There must be someone behind it all. And yet even with all of the good stuff and all of the beauty in the world, all the goodness at the heart of creation, there's also a lot of bad stuff. There's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of hurt. And it's all of that that points to our distance from God. Distance based on the existence of sin in the whole world and distance based on our own sins, the things that we've done and and what other people have done to us. We are and we feel a long way away from God. And in this letter to the Romans, we discover that there's nothing that we can do to get closer to him by ourselves. So Jesus came. The Son of God himself came to us to make it possible for us to be okay with God for this life and also for eternity. That's, that's the gospel. That's the good news. That God makes people right with himself. Or another way of saying it is that Jesus restores our relationship with God. Jesus restores your relationship with God. No matter your background, no matter what you've done, the good news is that Jesus restores a right relationship with God for you. Now, there is no illustration or story or analogy that can really fully capture this, but, I, but I'm going to have a go, like to just to nail it in one short example. No, no, just going to have a go at something that might help you kind of grasp this a little bit for your own life and other people's life. So come with me for a minute and imagine that your life is represented by a small car. And it looks like a remote control car, but in this analogy, there is no remote control. You are the car and you determine where you go in life. The car is you, the car is your life, and you make the decisions. In God's world, he doesn't remotely control us. God isn't a master of puppets pulling your strings. God has created the world and he's set things in motion and he's given us free will. You can choose where you drive yourself. You can choose where you go. You can choose to try and stay on the track as well as you can, or you can choose to go exploring and go all over the place and find new places and do new things. God gives everyone, for better or worse, the choice of where they drive. This is your life. For better or worse, you call the shots in the world that God has created. And For some of us, that works really well. Sometimes for a long time, we exercise our freedom and our autonomy and we go on and we do great things and we have healthy relationships with other people, other cars, other people, and things work out as we'd hoped or sometimes even better than we'd hoped. Life is good. But eventually, things get rough. Things get a bit more difficult. It's not all sweet berms and perfect jumps. Sometimes people are born into difficulty. It's like they're on the back foot from the moment that they're born. And other people experience pain later in life. But whenever it happens, whatever it looks like, you realize that that life isn't all good and isn't all perfect. Sometimes it's rocky and sometimes we crash into each other and sometimes the wheels fall off. And sometimes you flip the car so what happens when you find yourself flipped on the roof with your wheels spinning? What, what do you do? How do you, how do you 
How do you get back over again? What happens when you flip the car and you find yourself on the roof with the wheels spinning? This is what Paul has been writing about. Whether you set out in life to stay on what you thought was the right track and stay within the lines and do it as well as you could, or whether you went off exploring, eventually you flip the car and you aren't going anywhere. Doesn't matter how hard you rev the engine, doesn't matter how hard you spin your wheels, you are stuck. You and your tiny little car in the great big world are stuck. That's the bad news. You can't get to the creator and make him put his hand into the the world and flip you back over again. You're stuck. There's nothing you can do to get to the creator and make him reach his hand in and turn your car back on its wheels. On your own, when life gets flipped, turned upside down, you can't get to God. You need God to come to you, which is exactly what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection. He's the one that makes it possible for you to be in a restored relationship with God. The one who makes it possible for you, the car in this analogy, to be in relationship with the creator, guided by him as you live your life and with his ability to reach in and set your life back up again. Or, eventually, when life is over and you're permanently on your back with the wheels in the air, the one who's able to take your car and set it into new life, into eternal life with him. So when you get there, when you get to that moment, and that moment that moment in this life could be right around the corner when you find yourself with your wheels in the air and you don't know what to do, or, or that moment of eternity could be right around the corner. When you get to that moment, will you be in a restored relationship with God? Paul writes in verse 9 of chapter 10, he says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God and it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. We need God to come to us, and he has in Jesus. And so our part is to believe that he has, to trust that he can restore our relationship with God. Believe that and declare that openly, and it's done. But you have to call on God to save you. You have to be the one who reaches out and asks. The the, the work is done, the offer is there, but it's up to us to call. Now is the time. Because from all of the warnings that Jesus gave and all of the other warnings later in the New Testament, there will come a time when it is too late. When you didn't see it coming, but you find yourself unable to go anywhere. But it's not too late today to call out to him and enter into that right relationship. And it's not, it's not just an insurance plan. It's not a you know, pay now and, and get later. Relationship with God is about life today. His guidance as you drive through life. Him partnering, you partnering with him in doing some of the most important fulfilling stuff you've ever done. And it's a life that continues then into eternity. 
So when you've received this good news, when you go, yep, I, I believe that I'm going to put my trust in Jesus, that that's true, you enter into that partnership with God. And as you read and journal through Romans this week, I'm not going to give it away to you. You're going to find some, some beautiful passages about your responsibility of partnership with God to share his gospel with other people so that they too can hear and understand and call out to him. Because Paul does write in in verse 17, he says that faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. So it's our job to speak up about God. God doesn't send his angels out with megaphones to share the gospel so that people will hear. He sends his people out with vocal cords so that we can share the gospel, the good news about Jesus, so that other people can have faith after they hear it. But what do we actually say? And, and how do we go about saying it? And this is where we often experience freeze, fright, or flight. So we freeze, we don't know what to say, we just kind of go blank and face blank and, and hope this is over very soon. Or we, we freak out and words tumble out of our mouths and, and, and we say some things that we hope are helpful, but we're not really sure. We don't have a plan and we just kind of, you know, we're, we're afraid about it. Or we flight, we run and get out of there as soon as we can or change the topic. And man, it's raining a lot, isn't it? Wow. I can remember like my best example of sharing the gospel, perhaps the best I've ever done is when I was a support worker back in the day and had a co-worker in the car with me and, and I don't know how she had heard about this, maybe I'd said something, but she just goes, oh, you're a Christian, aren't you? Like, what does that mean? And, and I think in the next three minutes, I experienced all three, fright, flight and freeze, all in those three minutes in order. The first thing that happened was that I completely froze. It was as if my brain just emptied itself of all of its contents And I forgot everything that I ever knew about anything in the world, especially about my faith. I didn't know what to say. And then next I went into fright mode and and just out come this, well, all right, okay, so there's God, okay? Um, And then there's Jesus and he's also God, but he's the son and and he's the father and the father and the son and he can, and oh, there's the Holy Spirit, there's that, and then um, the cross. Uh, Oh man, like I don't even know what it was that I said or if it made any sense and I don't know what she heard, because I realized all the, t- the hopeless things that were coming out of my mouth. So I just then went into flight mode and got out of that car as soon as I possibly could. So the rest of our time together today, I want to help my younger self and help you out with understanding what is it actually that we believe is the gospel? What is the most important thing to say? And because Paul's not writing about evangelism. Paul's writing about unity. We're going to come back and land on that point with communion. When we disagree on some of these details, how can we still get along? What, what do we have to agree on and what, what things can we have disagreement on when it comes to the gospel? So the gospel is your restored relationship with God because of Jesus. The who of that is Jesus The what of that is that Jesus restores your relationship with God and the why is because you can't do it by yourself. Now, if you had to tell someone anything, that'd be the best thing to tell them, that Jesus restores their relationship with God. And that often comes best at a pain point in their life when they know that the road is rough. They know that the car is stuck and and everything they've tried isn't working. That's often the best time for them to be open to having faith in Jesus and hearing the gospel. 
But the next logical question that any person would have is how? So I get the who and the what and the why, and I get that Jesus restores my relationship with God, but, but like, how does he actually do that? Why can't I do it by myself? How does Jesus do it? And, and that is a really good question, and there are a lot of really good answers, even within the New Testament, even within what the Apostle Paul wrote. And the most common one, and this is some, often where we land as if this is the only way, is that Paul often writes in a legal sense like about guilt and forgiveness. So he talks about how, you know, we as sinners are, are guilty and we need Jesus to forgive us and to rescue us in that way. And, and so that's how Paul often talks about the how. How does Jesus do it? Well, by forgiving you of your guilt and making you legally right with God. And he absolutely does do that. But, but there are other times when he doesn't talk about that at all. He doesn't even mention guilt, doesn't mention forgiveness, doesn't even mention sin. That's because all of those things are the how, they're not the pure gospel. The essence of the gospel is Jesus. Jesus, the person, is God's good news. How he did it is really important and really interesting, but there's a lot of different ways to understand the how, and those things are an extension of the gospel. And, and, and I get it because I know that I need to summarize things and get things like clear and simple in my head. And, and so we try and you know, get the gospel down as, as small as possible just so it's simple. And you know, the, we follow these, these four steps to share the gospel and there's these verses in Romans and, and, and on we go. But often we just package a bit too much in there, which makes it A, hard to explain and B, hard to get along with other Christians who package a different how into their gospel. A particular way of understanding how is helpful. So to the Jews, Paul would write and Paul would speak, and Peter, the, the other apostle who wrote the most in the New Testament, did the same thing. They would always write about the Old Testament. Sometimes not about sin or the law. They would just say, oh, you know, you have this distance with God. Well, Jesus is in the lineage of King David of Israel. And he was born into that family and he's God's Messiah because that was so important to them. How could Jesus possibly make me okay with God? Oh, 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 he comes from that family line. Oh, he's God's promised Messiah and it would click. But, but to a Greek person with no Old Testament, that was just like made up words. It would mean nothing to them. That, it's pointless explaining how in those ways. And so they would talk about other things, about how you know, there, is, there is death and darkness and Jesus came to defeat death and darkness. In the Bible itself, there's lots of different ways to answer the how question. So hear me, hear me clearly. The gospel is our essential truth. That's what we agree on. It's the thing we all as Christians in the whole world have in common. Jesus restores our relationship with God. How does he do that? Well, we're free to explore that. And with the last couple of minutes we have in this message, we're going to do that together. Because theologians call the how of this question theories of atonement. So the atonement is the at-one-ment that God makes us at one with him, in unity with him. That's, that's another way of talking about the gospel. It's the at-one-ment, atonement with God. How does he do that? That's what we call theories of atonement. How did God administer this salvation to us? What did Jesus actually achieve on the cross? How does Jesus do it? All of these are theories and the ones I'm going to present to you today, there's some wide variety in them and none of them are wrong. 
you know, there are some boundaries, like you can't just make stuff up. But, but there is a whole lot of variety in the how of the gospel, which is really interesting. So I'm going to put on the screen in a minute six of the main atonement theories. And what I want to invite you to do is to have a look and, and reorder them, either in your own mind or on your own page, in order of most importance to you. And it might just be you pick the best one and the worst one. You go, that is the one. I think, I think that, that actually explains the whole gospel. And I think this one completely misses it and is wrong. I just invite you to just to, just to go wild and discard some and, and claim the others. Or you might want to actually reorder the six in order. So the first theory of atonement is victory. That Jesus is victorious over sin and death. And he sets us free from evil and death. So it's his, his death and his resurrection and it conquered sin and it conquered death and it freed you and I from the power of evil. That's one way of understanding how Jesus restores our relationship with God. Now, a complete other one is the moral influence theory. So Jesus is our great example and he is our inspiration for a godly life. So his life and his death, they are a powerful example of sacrificial love and they inspire us to live more virtuous lives empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, now just notice for a minute what is not in that moral influence theory. Nothing about sin. Nothing about God's judgment. It's understanding the how of the gospel in a completely different way. Number three, satisfaction. So Jesus satisfies the debt of humanity and he satisfies God's justice. There's some of the stuff that some of you have been looking for. So humanity owes God a debt because of our sin. And Jesus paid that debt through his death and satisfies God's justice. And number four is perhaps the most common in the, the Western Christian world in this period of history is penal substitution or penal substitutionary atonement that Jesus took on God's wrath and God's anger in our place instead of us. So we deserve punishment from God for our sin, but Jesus took on that punishment when he died on the cross and he allowed us to then be forgiven and reconciled with God. Then completely different again, the governmental. So Jesus' death paid a penalty for sure. It wasn't a specific penalty, but just in a, in a governmental sense, Jesus paid a penalty for the sin of humanity and serves as the demonstration then of God's justice and a warning to us about the consequences of sin. And then the last one is ransom. So, you know, like in a, in a kidnapping situation, the kidnappers will ask for a ransom. Well, sin and death had humanity captured. And a ransom needed to be paid. And so Jesus' death and resurrection paid that ransom and freed humanity and restored them to God. So which one is right? Or which one is most right? And I want to say to you that in the big sense of the gospel, they're all right. They're all faithful to the who and the what and the why of what God has done for us in Jesus. But they just come at it, the how from different angles. And it's perfectly normal for you to avoid one of them and to love the other one. To think one is correct and then think another one is, is probably completely incorrect. That, that's normal and that's okay. But what we do need to accept, and my challenge for you today is, if you're sitting next to someone that chooses a different one than you, that's okay. 
God is much bigger, his gospel is much bigger than different theories of atonement. Aussie theologian Leon Morris, he says, we need all the theories. Each draws attention to an important aspect of our salvation and we dare not surrender any. But we are all small-minded sinners and the atonement, the gospel, is great and vast. And so we shouldn't expect that our theories will ever explain it fully. Even when we put them all together, we'll no more than begin to comprehend a little of the vastness of God's saving deed. So what is important, what is essential, is that we have unity in Jesus. And it's not that Jesus plus the right atonement theory equals the gospel. You can set that stuff aside. It's that Jesus equals the gospel. And the atonement theories help us understand how. And here's why Paul wrote this, and here's why I've taken the time and even to go into depth into um, you know, some of the theology and understanding of it, of it today. And first of all, it's because it's important for each one of us to understand you know, how and why am I in a restored relationship with God? How is this possible? There's a number of ways to understand that, but the most important thing is that we are, that we've accepted what Jesus has done for us, and we're in that relationship with God. Secondly, there's a load of different ways to explain it to other people. You have one that resonates with you and makes the most sense to you, and someone else will have a different one. And so give yourself freedom in your own thinking and, and freedom to follow the Spirit's prompting when you are sharing the gospel to explain it, the how, in a different way that you feel will connect with them. But the third one, and this is the whole reason for the letter that we're spending nine weeks in, is unity. Because remember the two groups. They came at the same gospel from completely different points of view. And Paul goes to great lengths and great pains to tell them, that's okay. You're both landing at the same place. It's okay that you come from different points of view. You can accept, you can love, and you should love each other. And for the rest of the letter, we're going to dive into some of the nitty-gritty and the practical living, loving stuff from next week onwards. Because we've sorted this out, because you don't need to divide or exclude each other, you can accept each other and be in unity and get on. And even today, this is important, because other Christians will exclude you because of a different theory from our list today. You might not have experienced that. I hope that you never do, but, but I have, and you may well have, or, or you might one day, that not based on the gospel, but just based on one of the theories, someone will say, well, this one is the only one. And so if you subscribe to any of those other ones, then that's wrong and we can't be Christians together. Paul's whole point is that you can and you should. A new freedom is here. Revealed in the pages of Romans, Jesus is here to set us free from trying to get to God by ourselves, to set us free from our cultural obligations, to set us free from the sin that weighs us down, and to set us free from divisions within the church and within Christians. A new freedom that restores our relationship with our Creator through Jesus. And so in response to this, in response to this good news of God, we're going to share in communion together now. So now's the time to grab your packet if you want to join in with us. 
I want to invite you to bring your attention back to the gospel, that Jesus has restored your relationship to God. This is good news. And then also I want to invite you as a, like a devotional exercise to just cast your eyes over the list again that's going to be on the screen. And before we take communion, to pick the one, of the, the, the one theory that resonates the most with you, the one that you like the best, the one you think is the most right. And if you're not sure, just you know, pick a random number between one and six and, and think about it for this morning. Pick one of these theories and, and let that fuel your response and thankfulness to God. We're going to share in communion together um, bit by bit this morning. And so in a moment after I pray, I'm going to read through um, part of, of the record of the night when Jesus shared the Last Supper and the First Communion with his disciples. And we're going to eat all together after reading part of it. And then we'll read the next bit and we'll drink all together. But just before we do that, we're, we're going to keep those atonement theories up on the screen. I just want to invite you to pause just for a moment of prayer. To let the, the, the thoughts, the theory, the deep thinking stuff kind of sit with you. And also just specifically invite God's spirit into the space of your mind, into the space of your worship today. Jesus, we thank you for the incredibly big good news that you brought with your life. We thank you that in every moment of our lives, whether the wheels are on or the wheels are off, whether we're the right way up or we're flip turned upside down, that we can be in a restored relationship with you. You guiding us through life and you leading us through death into eternity. So as we prepare to thank you specifically for what you did on the cross in a moment, by your Holy Spirit, I know that you live within each of your followers, each of your children. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak in the space of our minds, in our thoughts, as we, we think theologically about Jesus' death on the cross and how it does restore our relationship with God. layer and get that little bit of bread ready. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. same way Jesus took the cup of wine after supper saying this cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it 
let's drink together. Thank you.